0: The book of the Song of Solomon. We come now to the fifth and final books of poetry. Remember, we started with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now finally to the Song of Solomon. And these books, because of the imagery, because of the poetry, have not been easy to understand or to study. But we made it through. And after that, we come to the next section, which is the prophets. And we start with what's called the major prophets, because they're the largest of the books, and then the minor prophets, just because they're smaller. They're really not in chronological order, um, as, they, uh, as we saw earlier before we got to the book of poetry, which was the history of the children of Israel. And those were put in... a chronological order from Genesis to Esther showing the history of the Jews, then the five books of poetry, and then the prophets, and it's going to be going back now during the history of the chronological historical time of the Jews. And so we'll be going back and looking at the history and referring back to the different kings and the different times. But we come here to probably the most controversial book of the Bible. Because as you read it, you find it sounds very erotic. And uh, we have to separate it from the content and the intent. The Jews actually had a rule that they could not read it till they were 30 years of age. Because of the sexual content in this. And so we have to ask ourselves, what was the intent of the writer? Well, there's actually four different views. The one view is that it is indeed a sex manual. Romance, sex, and marriage. And um, we do realize as we read Genesis Chapters 1, verse 27, it says, God made man male and female. Then we come to chapter 2, and we see how the Lord made it. They actually made Adam first, and then after he was done naming the animals, at that point he was alone. And God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And he gave him that helpmate, that one to come alongside. And it said the two would become one flesh. And then the very next verse says, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed of it. And so God made marriage, God made sex in marriage. And I again underline in marriage, um, because we do have in uh, Hebrews, it says that anybody that has sex outside of marriage, that God will judge them because of something very special that He's made in that marriage union. Now we do have, later on, the Lord teaching us, in Matthew chapter 19, that God does make people to be single, not everybody is to be married, and a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you're far better off if you stay single, and he says, I'm telling you not to get married, because I'm trying to save you from pain, and... uh, (laughs) And so he says, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they remain, even as I am, referring to a single state. And uh, Jesus, again, in Matthew 19, verse 11 and 12, makes note that there are people that are single for certain reasons, for different reasons, and uh, the Lord's in those reasons to be single. But God has also made marriage. The second possibility is that the book is actually an allegory. Now, when we talk about allegories, we've got to be very, very careful. Because when you go back and study church history, the church was always led into a dark ages when they began to allegorize the Bible. However, the Bible does tell us there's allegories. In Galatians chapter there, Paul says that the whole thing with Sarah and uh, Hagar was actually an allegory for us to see, those who would be under the law and those who would be free from the law. And so we do see that the Lord has built allegories within the scriptures. But again, who's to say what means what? And as we look at it in a general sense, it does appear that The Song of Solomon is an allegory of God's love to the children of Israel. And we do know this for a fact in the book of Hosea, where he does plainly say that the prophet Hosea was as God and his wife Gomer was as the children of Israel, his bride being unfaithful to him. So there is clearly that analogy there. When I teach hermeneutics, I teach the difference between allegories and analogies and metaphors and all of that. I'm not going to go in that tonight because, you know, they don't like it in Bible college. I definitely won't do it here with you guys. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's an allegory of God and Israel. But also, the third thing, it's an allegory or a picture of Christ and His love for the church. And we definitely know this is a fact in Ephesians chapter 5 when it makes it plain there that when he gave the whole analogy of the husband and wife, he said, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. However, it's a good analogy for husbands and wives as well in Ephesians chapter 5. And the fourth, which is not really that accepted, is actually Solomon, because of his backslidden state, was as the world. And he's actually seducing away a gal from her shepherd husband and all of the difficulties and problems they have in this immoral relationship. And again, you can see why at different points, why they might consider that, but I reject that one. But I I do think that these first three are all in there. This is a manual for romance and marriage. This is an analogy of God and Israel, and this is an analogy of Christ and the church. And as you have any analogy, any allegory, You'd never have 100% on that point. And so you say, well, how does that apply to Christ and the church? Well, it doesn't. That particular point there really is simply for romance and marriage. Well, how would that apply to the church? Well, it doesn't. That part there applies to Israel. And so we trust that God, through His Holy Spirit, will teach us to know His Word, and to help us to understand these things. We do have the promise in God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that we have the mind of Christ, and therefore, we can appraise all things. And so, we'll take a look at this, and we're going to focus on Christ and the church. Although I'll make reference to God and Israel, and although I'll make reference to romance and the marriage, The explicit sexual part, I will not share. I'll keep that for a different audience when we have marriage retreats and so forth, and sharing on that. And so there will be parts that I actually read and skip, and that's the reason, is because it's not for every audience, and uh, you can take it and read it on your own and let the Lord speak to you. Well, we now come to chapter 1, verse 1 of the song of Solomon and um, again Solomon writes here the song of songs which is Solomon's now this is really something for Solomon to say because it tells us in first Kings chapter 4 verse 32 that he actually wrote 1005 songs in his lifetime but this is the one That was the major hit. This is the one that went platinum. (laughs) This was not just one of those 1,005 songs. This was the song of songs. And now we come to the Shulamite bride, his wife. We'll find out in chapter 4, verse 8, she was actually from the area of Lebanon. And here she is talking to her husband, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine." So here she is clearly wanting an intimate, close relationship. She doesn't say here, give me a kiss on the cheek, as they would in this culture in greetings. They wouldn't say, Give me a kiss even upon the neck, which was drawing somebody near. As we see the prodigal son and, and how he fell upon his son and kissed his neck. So glad to see him. But this is a kiss of intimacy, of connection on the mouth. The Bible says to seek his face. The psalmist writes, "When you, I heard you say that. Seek your face. My soul said, your face, O Lord will I seek. And here we see that she's saying I want in your face. <laughs> and I want you in my face and I want an intimate connection. And far as your love it's better than wine, it's better than any earthly thing. Your love brings joy. Your your love brings refreshing like nothing else upon this earth. I want your love. It's far better than the best this world has to offer. And so we as Christians the Lord has not just given us the analogy as his sheep he's not just given us the analogy as our father but he's given us the analogy as we are the bride of Christ why because he wants us to push that analogy to say as we are as a husband would be near unto his wife that's how God wants to be unto us as the two come and oneness in marriage and intimacy in marriage. So God wants that kind of intimacy and love and connection. And when you come in marriage, you're saying, I'm for you and you're for me for the rest of our lives. From this point forward, it's you and me becoming one and that's it. There's a union that, in that marriage that is like no other union upon the earth. That's the way God's desired it. And so we on this earth have that same Thing. It's you, Lord. It's you're the one I want to kiss. It's you're the one I want to bring brought near and nobody else. You're the one. The one. And in verse 3, it goes on, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is anointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. And so we see here that that name, synonymous in the Hebrew understanding of nature, your nature is an ointment poured out. It's a healing balm. He also says it's a fragrance of just good ointments, that good smell, that rich smell. In our country, we have to look hard and far to find expensive, expensive perfumes. But in the Middle East, and also I've noticed in Europe, when you go to buy perfume or go to look at perfume, they're in small vials, and they're incredibly expensive. One guy was going on a Westpac to the Middle East, and I said, hey, could you bring me back some frankincense and myrrh? I already got the gold. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) But I, I wanted to smell it. And he brought back, and sure enough, in little plastic containers, these little uh, rocks of frankincense and myrrh. And they smell beautiful, and I have them. I bring them out at Christmas time and use them when I'm with the kids and so forth. He said, I would have gotten you a little tiny vial of it, but the smallest vial I could find of frankincense and myrrh was over $1,000. And I said, come on, you cheap, you know, that's, that's nothing, you know. No, I didn't say that. I said, whoa, I'm glad you didn't because I wouldn't have had the money to reimburse you for that. And so here, this is the point. It, it's like there's a richness, there's a goodness, there's a, a smell, there's a fragrance. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 2 that your fragrance, the knowledge of him in every place is a beautiful fragrance. And also his nature, it's It's a healing ointment that's just poured forth in a healing way. We see that nature of God described in Exodus 34, where it says there, "...the Lord God merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin." In Matthew 11 it says, "...for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then we know of that precious smell of the fruits of the Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the long suffering the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. How your nature is just healing. How the knowledge of you in every place is a beautiful fragrance poured out. And not everybody loves it, but the virgins love you. Those who are available those who haven't yet married those who haven't yet made a connection they look at you my husband and they say oh I want a husband like that oh I want somebody like him oh I want somebody with the nature like his oh I want somebody with that sweet fragrance of the knowledge of him but yet those people in the world that already have their religion, already have their religious ways, like the Pharisees. They hated Jesus and they hated His nature and they hated the the sense and the smell and the fragrance of Him. They wanted to kill Him. And now she cries out and she says, draw me away. I want to be taken away by you. Now, concerning marriage... The gal often is the one to say, oh, you know, hold my hand or hug me or sit next to me or, or I just want to be with you. That romance typically is from the gals in that way. But they get to the point saying, draw me away now. Now I want you to intensely desire me. It's a sad relationship when only one side desires the other. Maybe you've seen that, where some girl is just all goo goo over some guy, and he's sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, you're okay, I could do better. That attitude, you've you maybe seen that, or vice versa. And It's a pretty gross scene, it really is. And so here she's made it clear, she's put it all on the line, oh, I just want to kiss you, oh, I just love you, and I love you so much, it's better than anything. And she says, oh, just your nature and the way you are is so beautiful and so wonderful. And man, all, the, all my girlfriends who aren't married, just they think you're the bomb, man. <laughs> you're the one. And now she says, it's your turn, draw me away. And in Christianity... With our relationship with the Lord, we say draw us away because we're so weak. We often get sidetracked by so many things, don't we? And we really do need the Lord to help us. We're so weak. It says in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I'm so glad God's Spirit lives within me, and I sense His Spirit drawing me away after Jesus. It's of, of Him. It's by His power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29-31, to 31, it says that no flesh should glory in His presence, but of Him, or by His doing, you are in Christ, who became for us the wisdom of, from God, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption, that as it's written... Him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's God who has drawn us after himself. It says plainly in John chapter 6, No one can come unto me unless the Father draws him. That word in the Greek, draw, literally means to drag. Nobody comes unto me unless the Father drags him. And I am so glad that God is not willing to just draw, but to drag. Because sometimes we need that dragging work of God, don't we? And I'm so glad that He helps us in our weaknesses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am. Can't we all say that? And it's His grace towards me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You're here tonight by the grace of God. Tonight you'll be in some degree of intensity of prayer. I hope you're intensely in prayer. Like Paul, I say, let's strive together with me in prayer that the doors might be open, that the gospel might be go, go forward, that the provisions for the new building might be made, that we would be bold witnesses that we ought. Strive together. The word agonizo might agonize. But we are what we are by the grace of God. It's by His doing. And so draw me. Lord, help me in my weakness. And if you help me, notice, then we will run after you. We're going to go for it. Now, sometimes it's hard to know who the you is. Is it talking about her or talking about him? Well, in many of the cases, you can tell by whether it's the feminine gender or the masculine gender. And we have in verse 4, the you is masculine. So we now is referring, first in verse, the verse far, first part of verse 4 is, draw me away but then it says and we referring to all the other virgins so it's not just speaking for herself but speaking for all believers draw me away and and then as i'm being drawn after you what happens others are going to see that and they're going to be running after you as well and we're all going to chase you we're all going to pursue you and then she says the king has brought me into his inner chambers I love that. It happened. The king did it. He drew her away. He brought her into that interplace, into his chambers. And then the daughters of Jerusalem, as they see now, as she comes and says, kiss me, hold me. I want you. I love you. Oh, you're so wonderful. And she says, draw me away. And and then it says, and we'll run after you. We want all want that kind of relationship with you, but then he, in a very personal, intimate, one-on-one way, brings her now into the chambers. And the daughters now outside the door are singing. So as we go through the Song of Solomon, you'll see it could be easily made into a play. And it's sort of written in a play form. And so now outside the daughters are singing. We will be glad and rejoice in you. Now the you here is in the feminine. So we are happy, all the believers, all the angels, oh, we're so happy that He has drawn you away. We're so happy that He's taking you in the inner chambers. We're glad and we rejoice in you. Now, I just want to take just a moment here and notice how the virgins, the believers who love His nature, are all glad concerning her, representative of the church. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says there to the elders that the church is something very, very precious to him. He says, Shepherd the church of God which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. This is not just some sheep, (laughs) this is my sheep. And let me tell you about this sheep. I laid down my life for this sheep. It also tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about Christ and the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as, listen, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Guys, do you hear it? Christ loves His church. Just as ridiculous as it would be to come up to some guy on his wedding day saying, I know you're marrying this gal, but she is ugly. I know you're marrying this gal, but I can't stand her. I know you're marrying this gal, but she's a hypocrite. People say these kind of things about the church. And I want you to know when you say that, you're offending the husband, Jesus. He gave his blood for the church, he loves the church, he gave himself for the church. And God wants us to love the church. In John three thirteen verse 35, He says, And by this all will know that you are My disciples, if you have love one for another. If you as believers within the church love one another, that is how all men will know that you're His disciples, because you love the church as He loves the church. And here they're glad and they're rejoicing and they're happy. They're not envious or upset or mad or ticked off, but they're rejoicing in the church and the relationship that the king has with the bride. And then, he's, then the next sentence says, We will remember your, now the your is in the masculine. We'll remember your love more than wine. So now they're singing the song about the husband. To the bride, we're glad and rejoice in you, the feminine, and now we will remember your love in the masculine. And so here, although it doesn't state his love for the bride, yet his reaction in drawing her away, his reaction in bringing her into the inner chambers, they see his great love. And I'll tell you what, that's where we want to be. Jesus says, don't turn it in to some religious thing. Don't be like the Pharisees who go out on the street corners or in the public places and they pray these elaborate prayers. But when you pray, go into the inner room. And there as you pray, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And God's desire is that you would want Him in an intimate way. That you wouldn't just want Him in some public religious way that you truly, in a one-on way, love Him and desire Him and want to just, you and you and Him be alone together. And that is where we see that love of God is that time where you're spinning with Him. And then the bride says, rightly do they love you. Man, she says, you're so good. I, I know why all these gals want you. I know why all the virgins, those who are set apart, who Don't have somebody want you. I know why, because you're so wonderful. But now as she's in His presence, as she sees His nature, as He's rejoicing in who He is, notice the reaction to her. She says, but I am dark, or I am black, is literally the word there, but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kadar. Now, if you've seen the nomad tents, they're completely black with a black goat skin. But yet, like the curtains of Solomon were of white linen. So she realizes there's this thing happening. She's in the presence. She's just sensing his love and she's enjoying being with him. But she says, oh, I am dark. But yet, I know I'm lovely to you, but I'm dark. But I know I'm white like your linen. And then she says in verse 6, Oh, please do not look upon me. Because I am dark, I am black. Because the sun has tanned me. Oh, here's her excuse why. My My mother's sons, my brothers, were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards. I had to go outside in the sun and work hard like one of them. But my own vineyard, referring to her body, I have not kept. Brothers can be pretty mean sometimes, can't they? You know, and they, they say, well, why are we out here doing all the work and, you know, my sister's inside hanging out, combing her hair, you know? And so the brothers go and say, hey, I don't care if you're a girl. You get out here and work with us in the fields. And so in that Middle Eastern culture, you listen to the men, even if it was your brother, and she's out there having to work like a man, but yet she's darkened. Now, in our day and age, you'd say, I'm white, I'm pale white, (laughs) so don't look upon me, you know, because now being tanned is the end thing. But in this culture, it wasn't, and so this dark skin already to begin with, this Gal from the area of Lebanon, whether she was Lebanese or not, we don't know, but she already started dark. She became black through the sun. So white people get a little brown, but dark people turn black as they get more and more sun. And and she's saying, this is ugly. Marriage. Gals are always needing that affirmation from their husbands. They need to be told what you really think about them concerning their looks and their beauty. Again, guys, it's like, whatever, you know. But gals need to be told that their hair looks nice. They need to be told that, wow, you put that eyeliner stuff on really good today, or, or whatever you might say. You can tell I'm really good at this. No, seriously though. They need to be told, complimented on their clothes, on their figure, on those things. Because they are indeed made by God to be responders to their husband. And they want to know, am I pleasing? And they need to hear that Continually. You know, once a month won't do. They need to hear of your thoughts towards them. Guys often think it, but don't say it. And so here she's feeling very insecure and she's feeling very ugly. Now, we as believers, as we see Isaiah in chapter 6 there, when he was in the presence of Jesus, we know it was Jesus from John chapter 12. What did he say as he was in the presence? Oh, I see him high and lifted up. And it's a beautiful heavenly scene. But far as me, I am black. I am dark. I'm an unclean man in the midst of an unclean people. I sense my own sinful condition in the presence of one so lovely. We also see Paul saying in Romans chapter 7, There's no good thing that dwells in me, oh wretched man that I am. But... That's never the end of the story, is it? The end of the story is Isaiah is cleansed. The end of the story is thanks be through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're accepted by Him. We're received. So I understand that I am sinful, but I also by faith realize that you've made me as white as snow. And so she's not saying that that he is not, again, His work was not complete. I know I'm lovely to you. I know that I'm white as snow, as white as your white linen curtains. But at the same time, I still have this sense of my own sinful condition. And so we should, because it's real. People spend thousands of dollars a year to go to a shrink, to be told they don't need to feel guilty. (laughs) In reality, we do need to feel guilty if we sin. We do need to feel guilty if we're not walking in a manner worthy of Him. But it would be wrong if you say, well, I feel like such a sinner, so I must be. No. Feel like a sinner because you're in a sinful body and you're fighting sin every day. And every day we fall short of the glory of God. But make sure you don't end that sentence with a period, but with a comma. But I know I'm your lovely bride. But I know through the washing of the water of the word that you are making me without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, be prepared for that day. I have faith in you. And don't do what she did here to make excuses. I'm a sinner, so what do I do? I sin. (laughs) You don't have to make an excuse. I I see what's happening on the outward man. I see what's happening. You're darkened. But notice here now, in verse 7, it says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon... For why should I be as one who veils herself or one who is mourning for the dead by the flocks of your companions? So now it's another scene. He's not around and we see her longing once again. Tell me, where are you going today? Where are you going? Now we notice here that although he's the king, we see in verse 4 plainly, now he's also a shepherd. Which obviously was not the case (laughs) for a true king. But yet David was a shepherd before he was a king. And so that makes me wonder if David at some point in time didn't make Solomon a shepherd. Now that was the lowest of the caste system. But he wanted Solomon to know how the poor of the nation dwelt or how the working man had to go out and work hard every day. That would have been a very smart thing to do. For David to do with his son. So possibly he did indeed, in Solomon's younger years, for a period of time, gave him a four-year college degree in shepherding, you know? And that at this point that's what he's doing. Or maybe it's an imagery because this is an allegory of Christ in the church. And Christ is our king, but Christ is also our shepherd. But either way, this king at this point is indeed a shepherd. Now, this is where some take that weird angle by saying, here she's having an affair with a king, and now she's looking for her husband, who's a shepherd. And again, I reject that, and I, I think it kills the allegory of what God's doing, but this is how they get that angle. But here I believe she's saying to Solomon, and maybe as an imagery, <clears throat> where are you going to feed your flock? In other words, she's talking from a, a, a rule setting, where, where are you going to hang out? Where are you going to be at noon today, she says. And she says, don't make me have to wait to see you tonight. I'll walk around like a dead woman, like somebody mourning for the dead all day long. And don't tell me it's near where your companions are. That's not good enough. I want you. I don't want to hang out with your companions. I want to be with you. And now he, the beloved King Solomon our King Jesus begins to speak. If you do not know, O fairest among women. Now notice here the affirmation he gives her. She's feeling ugly. She's feeling unattractive because of the darkness of her skin. But what does he call her? The most beautiful of all women. And here he says, here's how you get there. Number one, Follow in the footsteps of the flock. And number two, and feed your little goats, which are also called kids, beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, O my love, to the filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, again, today, if you go home and say to your wife, I compare you among the filly of Pharaoh's chariots, you might get slapped, I, I don't know. But it was clearly understood at this time. Because Pharaoh, when he had his horses, they were the big Arabian stallions. Today, those horses go for around a million dollars. The elite horses. But they were all male. So you got all these male horses corralled in order to take out all of Pharaoh's chariots. And all of a sudden, you get this filly, this female. Horse coming by. What's going to happen with those stallions? They're going to be going nuts. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, You are like the only woman on earth. <laughs> and everybody else are these stallions, but you're walking by. You're driving all the guys nuts. You are so beautiful. So notice here again, guys, he affirms his wife. He declares his single love and single desire of beauty of his wife. The, there's a saying that says, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, and it's absolutely true. You are most, the most beautiful woman in the world, and so rightly he should feel that way. And now taking it over to the Christ and the church, that's how God feels about you. You're the most beautiful creature on earth. God loves you. There's none other besides you And so what are we to do as believers? How are we to find the Lord at noon? How are we to find the Lord within our week, within our day? Number one, verse 8 says, we should follow in the footsteps of the flock. Where are we going to find God? Where all the sheep are hanging out. So often we're wanting, again, a deeper relationship with God. How do I find that place? Simply, go to church simply attend more bible studies i've been pastoring now over almost seventeen years and i can tell you this that ninety nine percent of the counseling appointments we do are people that go to church once a week and i discovered a long time ago years ago people came in for counseling and typically What they needed to hear was exactly what I had taught on that Wednesday night or that Sunday night. And I find myself just simply repeating the sermon. And many years ago, when I was doing a lot of counseling, I finally made it mandatory that they go to all three services that week before I'll even see them in counseling. Because almost every time, it's exactly what they needed to hear. God was counseling them through His Word. God was speaking to them. And I've had it more than one occasion, set up a counseling appointment Wednesday night after church, and somebody comes up to me going, we don't need to meet. Everything that we had, questions for, here are the five questions, and here they were all answered during the message. So often what we need is just to be where the flock is. And then secondly, now you feed. Your flock right there. You feed your goats, your, your kids. You feed those who God's given you. You see, the key to growth is, is not just to take in the Word of God, but then to give out the Word of God. Not to be a pond that has no outlet that will become polluted, but now to give out. We see there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it said that in the... When you come to church, it's a place where the men need to be in dominant leadership. But then he says, and you gals, give yourself to the children. You need to pour yourself into the kids. Pour yourself into the teaching of the kids. Now, men as well. But everybody has an outlet. Let the older women teach the younger women. Let the women pour their life into the kids. And then we go on, interesting enough, to try to figure out who the church is to take care of. What kind of women would the church take care of? Because in that culture, women couldn't own property. They couldn't work jobs. So if their husband died, they were sunk. So the church had to take care of them. So there's a whole chapter on who is a widow indeed. And interesting enough, they are people that had to attend church a lot. They're people that had to minister to the saints a lot, washing their feet. And they could not have their own children who could take care of them But they also had to have ministered to children. Even though they didn't have children themselves, they were to be people who ministered to children. And there's a number of other qualifications as well. And so, where are you going to find the Lord in the afternoon? Where are you going to find the Lord? You've already been in the inner chamber, but you want more. Where are you going to find it? Where the flock is. Where are you going to find it? As you're feeding the flock. Right beside where the shepherds are. And their tents are where they're feeding the flock. In verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Remember she said in verse 6, don't look at me. I'm too black. I'm too dark. Don't look at me. And now he's looking at her and he's saying your cheeks are beautiful. Your neck is beautiful. That in that culture, that's all that would have been exposed. And he's saying, I'm looking at a very beautiful woman right now, again, assuring her of her beauty. And it says, your cheeks are lovely, and and I like the ornaments you're wearing. Now, in those days, the women wore head coverings. And, of course, she's a king's wife, so she would have had jewels in her head covering, you know, where it would have been uh, uh, jewels on top of her head coming down, and, and they dangled down almost like hair. And they typically had some that would come on their face as well. And usually there were little round ones with rubies and whatever in it, sort of clinging to the face. And he's saying, oh, you're so beautiful. Your cheeks are so beautiful. Oh, good choice on the jewelry, honey. You know, beautiful ornaments. Oh, you know, look at that neck. Oh, love the necklace. Man, that's a gorgeous necklace. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, and we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. You know what? I'm going to get you some more jewelry, honey. Uh, because you look so good in that, I think we're going to get you more. And of course, the Lord is says, saying that to us too. That we are going to have rewards for all of eternity. God's going to reward us for that which we've done unto him. And in verse 12, why the king is at his table... My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. That word spikenard is the same word of alabaster flask that Mary used to anoint the Lord's feet. Now where is she at at this point? She's at the king's table. Now Solomon's table was quite a sight to behold. We find in First Kings chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, It says that Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of mill, 10 fattened oxen, 20 oxen from the pasture, so a total of 30 oxen, 100 sheep, and besides that, deer and gazelle and roebucks and fattened fowl. I mean, imagine that, 30 oxen, A hundred sheep plus all kinds of other meats. Plus all kinds of breads and and all. It would have been quite a feast to have been whole. That's just for one day. And she's sitting there and and what does she sense? Not the smell of all of the barbecued meat and carne asada and all. But (laughs) it's the fragrance again. That fragrance as we learned earlier... of the nature. It's a bundle of myrrh in my beloved to me that lies all night between my breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms, those white flower blossoms, those who have been to Israel with us. As you remember we took the walk there in the Dead Sea area and we went up in that area of En Gedi. And I took one group in October, another group I took in spring. But when we went in springtime there's a white flower. There, uh, there's a, as we go up. It's completely dry, completely desert. But then we make our way and we come to the waterfalls there in Engedi. And there's the green flower. There's all kinds of greenery. And there's a white flower by the waterfalls there of Engedi that grow even to this day. And uh, and it's just a refreshing presence. She's saying being around you. Now. Notice here, gals, she does let him know what he has to look forward to that night. She lets him know, man, it's good being here at this table with you. I am glad to be honored with you. And I am thinking about our evening tonight of being together. And uh, no doubt that was a great great blessing to him, uh, hearing her uh, sort of initiate what he has to look forward to and uh, read between the lines. And, uh, but notice where she's blessed. Notice where she feels love. Notice where she's just enjoying the presence and the refreshing. It's at the king's table. That's God's desire for us at communion time. To come to that place, myrrh there, in verse 13, is one of those things that they used for the death, embalming and uh, putting upon the dead body. And so it's a place where, again, Mary, as she put the alabaster uh, flask, the spikenard, upon Jesus, what did he say? She's preparing me for my death. And so at the table, we remember the death of the Lord. At that table, we remember the beauty and the, the joy, the refreshing of what Christ has done for us. And in verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Now, when he says fair, that doesn't mean, ah, fair. Um, it's not the way the word here is being used. He's saying, oh, you're wonderful. And this time, interesting enough, he uses the word for my love is is the word companion or partner. And that's wonderful cuz now he's talking to her and he says to her you're my companion, you're my you're my friend, you're my buddy, you're you're my partner. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 it says husbands likewise dwell with them referring to women with understanding giving honor to the wife. And that's what he had done at this table at this married, at this table at that night. As to a weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. But notice he says, and see her as heirs together, as partners together in this grace of life. And this is exactly what he says to her You're my companion, you're my partner. Behold, you are fair, and you have dove's eyes. The eyes of a dove are very, very beautiful. A dove is a very gentle creature. If you ever get to look at a, the eyes of a dove, they're very dark. They're very beautiful. They're very, a deep, rich, brown color. And in this culture, it was a restful bird, a gentle bird, a beautiful, a bird that has such beautiful, rich, deep eyes. And he's saying to her, oh, you have such beautiful eyes. Behold, you are handsome, she says to him. So now she's responding Oh, man, you're, you've you affirmed me. You told me, even though I feel all dark and I feel ugly, you've told me that you love me. You told me that I'm beautiful. You told me you like my jewelry. <laughs> you told me that I've got dove's eyes. You like my eyes. And now now she just responds back, Oh, you are so handsome, my beloved. Oh, yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. Now, today... That may sound like you have an algae problem or some mold growing somewhere that shouldn't be there. But you've got to remember, this is a, a, a rural society and they, they think in rural settings. So when they look at the mountainside and they see the beautiful green, they think of a bed for their sheep. They think of a place where their animals will lie. And so she's thinking here of a beautiful, lush, green mountain or the side of a hill. And so she's saying, oh, our bed is just this beautiful, fertile place. And so again, she, she's responding to him. And so again, so often people are frustrated with their sex life Because they're going at it what to get. When you look at sex in a marriage as a place to get, you're always going to end up frustrated. But as you go to give, you will find that the other responds. And so she is very excited, very willing, very desiring to meet him and bless him because of his love for her. And so here is he's loving her and blessing her and speaking gently to her. It's causing her to respond saying, oh, you are so pleasant. Our our bed is green. In other words, man, I I want to be with you intimately. And then she says, the beams of our house are of cedar and our rafters of fir. I feel very safe in your presence. I feel very secure being with you. You've made us a solid house, a solid place. Boy, I I, I thought we were going to chapter 4 tonight. Was I unrealistic? But quickly, let's look over... Well, we can't really quickly. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I feel like the most beautiful flower on planet Earth. Isn't that great? He has made her feel like a precious rose. He's made her feel like the lily. The prize lily of the valley. He's doing his job. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that you need to love your wife, that you need to nourish and cherish her. Your wife should feel like the most beautiful woman on earth. She should feel like the most precious creature ever made. And if you're not doing that, you're blowing it. Now I have seen beautiful women under the care of an unloving husband in a matter of a short time become very ugly. They're worn, they're torn, they're weighed down. And the harshness and the hardness and the lack of affirmation has brought them to a place that they were a beautiful rose but it was as if he stripped the petals right off. On the other hand, I've seen women that are not beautiful far as beauty goes, but yet under the care of a loving husband, I have seen them become truly beautiful roses, the lily of the valley, under the care of a loving husband. And then the beloved says, oh yeah, you are like a lily among thorns, all the other flowers out there look like a thorn compared to you. So my love among the daughters. There's no one like you, honey. You are beautiful. Every, you're the only flower around. And then she says, Oh, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Oh, you are like a sweet tasting fruit, she says. And I just sit down under you, that apple tree, and there I'm shaded, I'm protected. I feel blessed, I feel refreshed, and I'm just able to be next to you and I feel like I'm eating just some wonderful sweet fruit. Isn't that the way it's to be? Marriage is to be that place where we're feeding off each other. And we're being blessed by each other. And that the time you have together is not a ripping, tearing, hurtful time. But a time of eating and fellowship and building up. A protection. A place of beauty and taste. And now the daughters, all the other gals, the believers say, He brought me to the banqueting house. Or that place to be honored. And his banner over me was love. The flag that was waving as he loves me. And so here, she says to her friends, Guys, let me tell you what he did for me. As she goes back to her friends, Oh, he brought me unto his table. And there at the table he honored me. And there he let everybody know that he loved me. Guys, your love for your wife should be visible, should be obvious. To your kids in particular at home, but also to others. That she's just not the old ball and chain. She's not just the old gal you got stuck with. But she really is something very precious, very wonderful to you. And there is something that happens in the heart of a woman when she is put down in front of others it's a scar that rarely heals. but on the same token there's something very deep that happens in the heart of a gal when she is praised in front of others and here she's saying in front of everybody he let it be known of his great love for me sustain me with the cakes of raisins refresh me with the apples For I am lovesick. So she's saying, I'm just eating up this. I am just swallowing it. I am eating it whole. Man, I love this thing that's happening. And now this desire of his affection towards her is clearly wanting her to be with him in a physical way. And here she describes a romantic physical scene upon their bed. His left hand is under my head. His right arm is is embracing me, and I will not go into any more details. And then she stops, and she realizes, oops, you guys aren't married yet. What am I telling you this for? And then she says, I charge you, I command you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, and by the does of the field, do not stir up, nor awaken love, until it pleases. So now she says to them, guys, forget what I just said, go back to sleep. Here she was, giving them all this romance and their hearts are pitter-pattering and now she takes them to starts telling them about their romantic love together and she says, oh, I shouldn't be doing this because I shouldn't be stirring you up because you're still single. Know about it. Oh, man, you look forward to it. It's going to be great. But wait until that time. Jacob came and saw his bride and agreed with his father-in-law, his future father-in-law Laban, that he would get his bride. And the price was he had to work seven years as an employee for him, seven years wages for that gal. And it says that Jacob worked for seven years, and because of his love for her, it seemed but a day. Love can wait, lust cannot wait. If he says, I love you so much, I, let's do it now. He doesn't love you at all. He loves himself. If he really loved you, he would want the best for you. Later on, um, it's, he's going to say, oh, my sister, my spouse. You've got to realize that your bride is the daughter of God. And she is your sister in the Lord before she's your wife. And before marriage and then after marriage. You need to remember, she's your sister before she's your wife. She's going to be your sister for all of eternity. She's only your wife for a short time. And that your care for her should be her eternal existence not the temporary existence and if you really love each other you can wait read about it first Corinthians 13 love is what patient Patient. love is patient lust is not patient love is patient and so here she says wait till God brings that person Wait till God arranges it. Wait till God works it out. In His time, He'll work it out. Well, because of time's sake, we will stop there in verse 7 and uh, pick up again next week in verse 8. You know, before we go tonight into the afterglow time, I wanted you guys to look at Matthew 18. If you've already put your Bibles away, it's too hard to pick them back up. I understand. You can listen. A lot of work. So heavy and all. Ryan, I just zipped my Bible cover up. Oh. Matthew 18. As I was talking today about the unity of the church and How Christ was praying that we would be one, even as He and the Father are one, that we would be one as the body of Christ. I was thinking about that power we have before God. Remember there in the Tower of Babel, it says that because they were one, there was no purpose that they had that could be stopped, even though they were in rebellion against God. God said, these guys have united themselves as one against us, And they have this purpose, and it's a demonic purpose, it's a humongous thing they're trying to do, build this structure that will take them right into the heavens. And he said, I'm going to stop it. But how much more, God being with us, in unity and in the will of God, we all come together as one. How powerful that is. And notice what Jesus says there in Matthew 18, verse 18. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you, notice here, agree. We're coming together in agreement. We're coming together as one heart, as one man, as one mouth, as one body, concerning anything. Now, in particular, he's talking about church discipline, But then he comes and he says, this isn't just for church discipline. It's for anything that they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven because where two or three are gathered, how? Together, in oneness, in agreement, in unity, in my name, in my nature, in my will. I am there in the midst of them. Him being one with us, agreeing together and one with us. <clears throat> and so, that's all we want is His will, isn't it? So we need to really understand, out of all the spiritual duties we do throughout the week, and they're really not duties because of our love for Him, but the time we spend in the Word, the time we spend in song, the time we spend in teaching, the time we spend in studying, that there is no more important time than the time we spend in prayer. a matter of fact, Paul telling Timothy how to put the church together in 1 Timothy 2, he said, First of all, that there would be prayers and supplication, which is earnest praying, with intercessions be made. God's desires that we would understand the first and most important thing happening here. Is prayer. So I'm glad we had a great time in worship tonight. This morning too is wonderful. We've had a great time learning the word. And realizing in a new and a fresh way God's love for us and his desire for us. And how he sees us not just as a kid, not just as a sheep, not just as a friend. But he sees us as a bride. And we're precious and lovely and he desires us and wants us. That's all great. But the real spiritual work is going to go forward. The real spiritual things are going to be done because we gather together and we agree. What's going to happen? This earth is going to be loose. This earth is going to be bound as it is in heaven. By the power of God, in other words, we bind on earth, the power of heaven is unleashed. Jesus here in the midst of us is doing that. When we loose... It's loosened. God is with us in this great and awesome task in which we put our hand to do. Lord, we thank You again for this time we've had together. And it's so important, Lord, that we are matured, that we are enriched, that we are completed and perfected as a body in this discipline, in this duty, in this thing as well, that we would come to love Your presence we had come to love praying that we had come to love spending this precious time at your feet lord we ask you now in a unique and a special way as we draw near unto you that you would draw near unto us lord we open our mouth wide tonight that you might feel it lord we come before you now agonizing in this time in prayer desiring to see the gospel go forward desiring to see your kingdom come your will to be done Lord, meet us here, lead us here, direct us here, teach us, O Lord, to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.